Welcome to Nothing Ventured, a podcast exploring the stories that make the incredible world of tech and venture tick. Join me, Arish Shah, as I speak to the founders, investors, and ecosystem operators trying to make a dent in the future. Hello and welcome to this episode of Nothing Ventured with me, Arish Shah. Today, I'm super excited to have with me Matt Pennycard. Matt is a partner at Ada Ventures, an early stage pre-seed fund writing 250,000 to 1 million pound checks into early stage UK-based technology ventures with bold ideas built by overlooked founders in overlooked markets. Prior to launching Ada in 2018, Matt spent almost the entirety of his his career working within the private equity and venture capital ecosystem, both in the UK as well as the US. With firms like Octopus, Hermes, DN and Downing, Matt, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here with me today on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Ash. It's great to be here. Thanks for the intro as well. I've forgotten (laughs) about a lot of that stuff and how long it had gone on for. But yeah, there you go. No doubt we'll explore some of that as we go along. Well, look, everyone loves a good origin story. I'd love to understand how you and Czech first met and conceived the idea for Ada. Cool. I mean, that's that's my favorite origin story. My wife won't listen to this, so I don't need to, <laughs> I don't need to talk about that. But my origin story with Czech is like, it's just like, I guess a seminal moment in my life, to be honest with you. If it helps, I'll give you the background just before that as to why it's been so important to me. As you said in the intro, I spent 20 years in private capital and indulge me, if you will. I I started out basically in private equity in the sort of early 2000s because, frankly, it was the cool thing to do. Like, I mean, I was, you know, in your early 20s, that is one of the things that dominates your decision making biologically, rightly or wrongly. And private equity was cool. And it was cool to a, a nerdy finance person like me anyway. And this is not false humility. I wasn't really very good at it at all. That's not my skill set, let's say. I'm not a mathematical whiz. I'm not super, you know, academically smart. And over my course of my career, and hopefully this is vaguely interesting to people listening, I found my skill set and my super returning powers and assets, and they're not in, you know, leverage buyout models. And that's, you know, I would have been like super rich if they were, but maybe not that happy, who knows? And so I sort of found myself on a winding path, right? Let's pretend we're on um, Harry Stubbing's podcast and how did I find my, my way to the wonderful world of venture, right? Uh, and I found it through the winding path of private capital finance and I did funder funds, which I absolutely loved. That was such a cool job, really educational. In the early part of, of career, that's a brilliant place to go. And I found myself to venture and I moved to the US when I was 30 years old and had an adventure and lived in New York City for five years and spent a ton of time in the Valley and sort of learned US style venture capital, if I can just put it in a box or started to learn it. We're all still learning. Anyway, the point of all that is I landed back in the UK about 2014 and worked at Downing and I worked at Downing. I was an employee of the firm and they backed me incredibly, all credit to them with with a big pile of EIS money. And luckily, very fortunate, these things come, this has only happened to me once in my 20 year career, a moment of like serendipity. This pistol of a woman called Czech Warner forced her way, you'd call it hustle, right? I mean, like just hustled her way into a meeting I was doing with a founder. It was a retail software business, like a, like a software for retail, for uh, bricks and mortar retail. And Czech knew the founder very well. And was talking to the founder about wanting to get into VC. And, you know, Czech was mid twenties at the time. And was working for an advertising agency. And Czech, by the way, is 
is sort of the opposite of me in that she's, you know, incredibly smart. She's got an amazing academic heritage. You know, she's got the kind of shiny CV that a lot of people in VC have. All credit to her, she works incredibly. But she, and she was an advertising agency and was obsessed with technology and was like, how do I get into tech? And thought about starting a company. She's incredibly entrepreneurial. Her and her husband, like, when they take vacation time, they, they work on startups together. Like, <laughs> Anyway, so she thought maybe being a VC. And so she hustled her way to this meeting, this pitch meeting with this entrepreneur, entrepreneur and basically just shoved her CV in my face. And I was like, oh, crikey, well, you seem very smart, but, you know, I'm not really sort of hiring at the moment. And not that it's really my decision to hire, it would be my boss's decision. Anyway, making a long story a bit shorter, because I'm really good at long stories. <laughs> or certainly, certainly indulge in them anyway. I, just, I was really intrigued by her. My mother, who's an amazing person, raised me, raised us all, you know, feminists, really. And, you know, I could tell you some wild stories about her and how she did that, but probably for a different podcast, I guess. But anyway, I, if I was going to hire, I did not want to hire a, a white man, basically. I was kind of a, I was an early adopter of the powers of diverse inputs, better, you know, the more optimal outputs, outcomes we get from that. And this is probably, you ask about origin, this is part of the story, actually, because I was already thinking if I do have somebody working with me, it better not be a clone of me. And most people in the business are smarter clones of me, basically. And so I was very excited by that. And she just had these kind of values that came shining through. And I thought, oh, someone I could get along with because you're not taking yourself too seriously, but take your life very seriously. You know, she was humble. She was super smart. She was incredibly keen to learn and work. And basically, long story short, we kind of hung out together for six months. And thought I talked about venture. And I thought I was just sort of giving her advice and things like that. And in the end, thought, well, wow, this is a real talent. How can I hire this person? And so Downing again backed me to hire her. You know, God bless them for that. And I said to check effectively, I said what the Octopus founder said to me, you know, 15 or so years prior to that, which is basically in nicer terms, like kind of do what I say and you'll learn a heck of a lot if you can keep up. And what I sort of said to check along those lines is, I've never managed anybody. I don't know how to do that. I'm sure I'm not going to be very good at it. But if you can keep up with what I'm doing, which is trying to be the most active seed investor in the UK at the time, with this money that Downing had entrusted to us by then, you're going to learn. You're going to be a qualified VC. Like You're going to learn. You're going to do 25 deals in the next two years. And you can do as much of them as you want. And I'll be right there supporting you and talking you through it. But we're going to go quick. So at the end of that period, you might go and maybe get a job at Axel Europe or something because you're that smart, right? I realized I couldn't get a job at Axel Europe because I wasn't that smart, but I could probably build something myself. So that's what we did. We did 36 deals together in three years. And during that time, pretty quickly into that time, and Ash like just like, you know, yell, throw the virtual mic at me if I'm talking to, this is too much, too long. But during that time, pretty early into that time, check was quite surprised by the homogeneity of the industry, right? And she founded Diversity VC on the back of that, co-founded by Diversity VC. And she was a CEO of Diversity VC on the back of that. To kind of look into the industry and put some data to the things that she was seeing. And you, we all know the data now, right? The most famous kind of talking point is 89p in every pound in UK VC goes to all male teams. And that was, you know, that was kind of stool one of Ada Ventures. We were like, hang on a minute. Maybe we could do something about that. And you can't really do that kind of thing from within another firm, I don't believe. You have to be independent. Or you're, certainly your chance of success have probably increased through independent. And Czech and I also found that we had developed this incredible working relationship, which is a massive surprise, right? I thought this is a, you know, really kind of pushy, like, 
this is a pushy, young, very talented person who I'm going to get to work with for a couple of years, and then she's going to go off and do great things with whoever. But actually what happened is we built this foundational relationship, which is based on love, trust, and respect. And this doesn't get talked about enough in VC partnerships, and people will say it to their LPs, but actually the big risk in VC partnerships is that money's involved and ego comes to play, and people end up like playing politics. And, and Czech and I have just, again, this is complete luck. This is not about, like, aren't we great? This is the luck of the universe that two people have kind of met who have very authentically developed that relationship. And so that was the second stall of Ada. We thought, wow, we could really build something together because we don't have any. And the third and final thing was was really that we felt we'd proven out that the UK needed a Silicon Valley style fund. And that's what Ada is. So Ada is those three things, really. It's looking at, you know, where other VCs not looking. We can get into some of that if you want to. And this is back in 20, we were thinking about this, like 2017, we left at the end of 2017, we started working on this in mid, late 2018, and we raised the fund. The fund took 15 months to raise in the middle of 2018, we closed it at the end of 2019. And that's what that fund, that first fund is all about. It's about, you know, greatness can come from anywhere. We're not pattern matching to what worked like in the past, we'll work in the future. And now that gets talked about an awful lot more, but it certainly wasn't very talked about when we were raising the first fund. A very long origin story. Yeah, no. So look, I'm I'm a massive fan of long stories. One of the reasons that I do this podcast is to allow the guests that come on here to really explore some of those in a bit more detail than they would normally otherwise have the opportunity to do. One of the things, or well, there's a couple of things that came out of there that I think were really interesting. The first is, you know, your point around finding your skill set over the course of your career, I think, I think is a really important one. I see it a lot. I'm sort of in my mid-ish 40s and a lot of my peers who went into law, banking, medicine, etc., 20 years on and now sort of sat there going, I'm really stuck. I, I don't actually want to be doing this. So I wish I'd chosen a different path or I don't know how to now get out of this, you know, because they were kind of, and I wouldn't, wouldn't say forced in, but, you know, certainly society, their parents, et cetera, et cetera, sent them down a path and maybe they even bought into that path at, at the outset. But as they move forward, they realize, well, two things happened. They realized that they were less and less inclined to carry on that down that path, but equally they were kind of, they were tied into that path either by salary or by peer pressure or by, you know, just the, the kind of, I guess that kind of kudos or that halo effect you get from being in part of that industry. So I think the one thing that I would take from that in that case, from your story is that for everyone who is looking to get into venture, well, there's two things. So everyone who is in venture or in the kind of finance field that wants to move around there, you don't have to follow that traditional career path, right? You've got to find what works. And actually, I think I would say that irrespective of the career, right? Or the discipline, always you know, do something that you're good at or that you're great at and find the thing that you're that you're able to really do to the best of your abilities. And the second thing that's kind of an ally to that, and I talk about it a lot on this podcast, is the kind of concept of chutzpah, right? So as you said, Czech kind of muscled her way into this meeting and landed her CV, you know, just put her CV in front of you. I think more of us should take those those chances and those opportunities because you don't know where those serendipitous moments, as, as you call them, will end up. So I, I, I think that's a wonderful origin story and <laughs> I, I'm very fortunate to have heard it. So look, I mean, Ada Ventures is named for Ada Lovelace, right? Who in the 1800s predicted the future of computing when she worked with Charles Babbage on the analytical engine. But why is it that 200 years on from her birth, we're still so woefully behind where we need to be in addressing that gap in funding to overlook founders. I mean, obviously, you know, one can talk about female founders as, as a cohort on their, on their own, but we all know that the numbers around female, around black or from so-called ethnic minorities or minority ethnic 
woefully short of where they were. And as you said, you know, 89 pence in every pound going to, to all all male teams is is certainly one of the metrics that stands out. So why has it been so problematic and where do we need to change things? I think that I'll just call it how I see it, right? Very bluntly, there is structural racism and structural sexism and and multiple other structural prejudices built into our society, right? We're both in the UK right now. We've both probably spent a ton of time in the US. So let's just stick with the UK because it's probably easy to digest at the moment. There is there is structural prejudice built into our societies. And I think that this kind of change that we're talking about takes generation, takes a generation, at least because if you're brought up in the early part of the 20th century and you're, you're in your elder generation now, you're brought up to believe different things. And that change takes a heck of a long time. And I think that the other issue is, is bravery. And this is really hard. You know, I'll, I'll give you a real example of this. One of the reasons LPs, um, limited partners, the investors in a venture fund said no to us in fund one, and we had, you know, 10x, we had an awful lot of no's, was because they said, well, you were investing in these interesting founders, but who's going to do the follow-on rounds? And they weren't sort of saying that all the Series A funds are racist, sexist, etc. But they were sort of saying there's a subconscious bias built into those funds. And they weren't, this is not actually about like, you know, throwing rocks at other people. Every single individual is on a journey with understanding privilege and prejudice. And no one should be like better than the other person because they're further along that journey of this. This is, and that's probably one of the issues why it's not getting fixed so quickly is there becomes an us and them, you know, are you enlightened or not enlightened? It's like the Brexit thing. Are you, you know, which side are you on? The polarization of these viewpoints. It's like US politics. Are you a Republican or a Democrat? If you are either way, you have to subscribe 100% to those doctrines and there's no, there's no matter. And that's not helpful. And that's kind of what's going on at the moment, I think, in this, you know, this particular structural prejudice, right, is that people can very quickly be scared by, oh my God, I'm a, I'm a straight white male. What's my role in this? And actually, the way it would accelerate, I think, is by understanding, more understanding the fact that we are all on a journey. We have all got different privileges and we are actually all subject to different prejudices. And as soon as we accept that, we realize we are all all one. Some people by accident of birth or postcode lottery are in a different, you know, present differently, right, with those privileges, but we've all got them. And I think that's what makes it really hard. So, so back to the sort of real life story, one of the, re- the main reasons people said no, sort of very sophisticated LP said, you know, I just don't know where the follow-on funding is going to come and you're backing these founders that just look and present differently to what the Series A and B funds in the established venture ecosystem are used to. And they're saying, you know, not saying it's right or wrong, it's just what's going to happen. That's a very real risk that Czech and I work through even now, right? That's a risk we haven't like fully mitigated in the fund. And the reason for that is Czech wrote this amazing article about the privilege of being able to raise a fund, right? Czech and I are both privately educated white people in the UK. Almost all the privilege you can imagine, right, in that in that regard. And, you know, the fact that we had the chutzpah, chutzpah is a privilege, right? Optimism is a privilege. The ability to back yourself is a massive privilege, which actually most of the world doesn't have. So if you've got that, you're already a long way down the curve of being able to you know, get what you're after. In our case, it was backing. Now it took a lot of effort and we, you know, there's, there's a story behind that, which is the fundraising story, which is you know, happy to go into. But you think about the difference between the way, as a generalization, 
an American founder will present versus the way a British founder will present, right? The marketing, the ability to talk publicly, the ability to present succinctly and convincingly is going to be very different because marketing starts with show and tell actually in like kindergarten and, and things in American schools. And that's really where it comes from. I, I think I've kind of looked into this. And I think the same is true if you look at a lot of the kind of overlooked founder communities that Ada invests into. I think that there's a there's an underlying difference in in competence and in ability or willingness to present in that succinct, convincing manner that perhaps an American might do versus a Brit. That's something we have to lean into and we and we work on it and the language and the gamification and the presenting skills and there are there are some things you can do about it, but ultimately that is a big part of the answer to your question. Like it's A, you know, it's quite a big picture. It's like, well, let's look at the structural issues in our society and let's all try and be a bit more positive about how we're gonna fix those rather than you're either with us or you're against us, which I don't think is very helpful to moving it all forward. And then secondly, there's kind of like what can you do about it once you're once you're in that fight like ada is right we're in that so what are we going to do about it we've got the privilege of being backed by lps to the tune of 38 million pounds in the first fund and what we're going to do about that apart from just deploy that capital into you know areas where we think there's going to be a massive financial and social return we have to do the the harder work with the day-to-day work which is helping those founders with the next stage of the journey because we're only a 38 million pound fund so we can't take them you know, we don't even do series A, we just do the seed rounds. So there are several things that come out of that, which I think are super important. One is, you know, you talked about it in terms of structural problems and the story around the LPs, I think is really poignant because I've talked a lot both online and on this podcast around the need for capital to recycle itself through the ecosystem. And therefore, the only way you get more diversity into venture is by starting with diverse LPs, because diverse LPs will fund diverse GPs who will fund diverse founders who will, you know, build diverse teams and then hopefully exit and recycle that capital through the system again. And then that just sort of spreads its tentacles. I think that is massively important. But as you say, it's probably only one rather large part of the puzzle, but it is only one part of the puzzle. I think the second thing that you said there that I I completely agree with is, you know, it's very hard to be a centrist nowadays, right? You've got to be a hard contrarian on either side of what is neither contrary or particularly helpful, because there is always a middle middle ground that one can take. And, you know, being a centrist is actually a position in and of itself. It just means that, hey, look, there are bits from here and bits from there that I can borrow and hopefully build a better a better solution rather than no solution because you're you're constantly in deadlock. And one of the things that you said there around well, two things. So you know, the point around privilege, again, I'm also sort of, you know, privately educated, I've had a very privileged upbringing. But I think the difficulty is, A, that obviously there aren't that many diverse founders that that necessarily go to private educate, into private education and therefore don't have those same opportunities to learn the skill sets that you talked about. So as an example, in UK private education, there's a lot of emphasis on team sports, on potentially drama or music, you know, performing arts where you're, you are having to get up and present yourself on stage, whereas potentially that doesn't happen as much in the state education system. And I can definitely see that as being a barrier. It's one that I would like to probably understand a bit better. But you talk there about how you then support the founders, because as you say, like if there aren't funds that they can raise their follow-on funding from, they need that additional support. So is the support that you give them getting to a place where they can raise from those funds? Or what exactly is it? What What is the support that you, you provide founders post-check? 
That's all we're trying to do, but I don't want to overemphasize it. It's not a silver bullet. We're ultimately trying to back founders that don't need a lot of that support, right? They just need to learn the language. They just need to understand financing a bit more. Like, and that's really where they, what they get with us. It's soft support. It's like, you know, if you talk to any of our founders, I would hope that they would see a Matt and Checker available to me anytime and, and I can talk through this stuff and I can get comfortable with it over the year or 18 months or two years when I'm in the seed environment. And that's really, honestly, actually what it kind of is at its core. I think it's interesting you bring up like this, the point about drama and sport and stuff. And that kind of thing is really baked hard into American schooling around like taking high school sport really seriously, like you're a professional team, if you're into sport, taking the high school play really seriously, like you're, you're going to Hollywood or you're going to Broadway after this. And I just think that's great. I think in the UK, you're kind of going to show up with a tennis racket having never played and and win the tournament. And, oh, I'm so lucky. And there's this humility requirement built into our culture, which actually I think is really unhelpful. And I think that the other thing I see a lot with like myself, actually, and my peers, and there's a lot of laziness baked into privately educated people. Maybe laziness is really harsh, but there's like a, there's a privilege of a safety net that actually has a really negative impact on people's lives. I was just going to say it's that entitlement. I mean, Alex McDonald and I are are setting up a charity at some point this year. We've been a bit slow to move, but our premise is that most people, even given the opportunity to launch an entrepreneurial journey, would struggle because they just don't have the support systems behind them if something were to go wrong, right? So one is, do I even have the money to launch, i.e. can I buy that bit of stock or can I, you know, build the, the MVP or whatever it might be? But the second is, like, can I crash on my parents' couch, like, if things go wrong. And in fact, actually, you know, again, you and I were talking earlier about Patrick Ryan, who we've had on the podcast before and who I I know you're an investor in. Paddy talked very candidly about the fact that, you know, he and his family moved into his parents' place for a while whilst they were building Odin because, you know, that Mm. cut out the need for rent and you just, you know, you relieve yourself from some of that pressure. Now, you know, I'm very fortunate, I'm sure you are, that we have places like that that we can go and we can subsidize our, our costs. But, for many, many, many people, that just isn't an option. And I think I think that's exactly it. And until we get to a place where it isn't just access to capital that is that helps people move forward, but also it's several things. It's destigmatizing failure because we still don't mm, have that attitude to failure here in the UK, but also saying to those that, look, if you do fail, don't worry about it. There is still X, Y, Z you know, of a track that you can go down or there is a way that you can come out of this with fewer scars. And if anything, actually, you know, those scars should take you forward, right? Because they show that you have at least made the effort to take that punt, to learn, to do something that many other people haven't, right? Hmm. Look, I, I'm deeply interested in this. When you set up the charity, I'd love to talk to you about it because Czech and I have been thinking about it stipends we've been thinking about an insurance product right so and met somebody else who's doing an insurance product for this right but i think it need, we need to go down to the next layer of this okay because also i think potentially if you make it too easy you don't get that thing to push against that massive chip that fight and actually if everybody wants to be an entrepreneur that's great but not everybody can be an entrepreneur and Maybe entrepreneurship comes to you in different times or different points of your life when you've got that energy it comes to. So I know for me personally, I developed two personal fights, basically. I developed two massive chips on my shoulder. And, you know, it sound, it's a bit lame for me to talk about it because of 
the, the obvious glaring privilege that I come from. But I did. I needed to fight against stuff. And I probably, it was a young guy, I was fighting, you know, and I'll be honest, it's given me power. A more, a, perhaps a more poignant example, a better example, is a founder that, that we backed who presents, particularly how the company's been so successful, as like, oh, right, yeah, part of the establishment, what have you. He said it publicly, so I can kind of reference it, but he grew up on the streets, grew up homeless. And, you know, for multiple years with his mother, you know, single-parent family, grew up living on the streets of East London, only white guy in his community. And he's been so successful and I, I tried to decode it with him. I said, why are you able to take this risk? Because so much of it is about risk appetite and ability to take risk. And I don't think if we take away all the safety nets, we're going to get great entrepreneurs. And this person said to me, because I've got nothing to lose. I have got nothing. And he's very forcibly saying to me, you're not taking enough risk at all. And I'm like, what? I just, oh, this is what I did to do Ada. And, you know, blah, blah. and he's like, that's great. You've done that. But what are you doing now? Like, how much risk are you? feeding and we all get in this country particularly with the fear of the failure thing exacerbates this are we putting enough back on the table to use your comment from earlier like you know you spend time in the states and it's about philanthropy and putting back on the table it's to make more often more impact with philanthropy more money with startup investing but the capital recycles right and i think that so we need to be a bit careful of is it a charity great Right, but what's a charity about? You know, we do a lot of work. We do we do some work with Turn, which is the Entrepreneurs Refugees Network, and you know, work Charlie's doing there is just amazing, right? But it is charitable, and I think that that's particularly poignant at the moment. The world focused on refugees, and the latent talent in the in the refugee populations is unbelievable, and it's completely overlooked. Countries accept refugees, and they and there's no way for them to to rise up. Right. Well, the way I often talk about it is migrants and refugees, they don't choose entrepreneurship. They're forced into it. They have to. They have no other option. They've got to take that risk because otherwise they can't feed their families. I mean, I think there is a very long conversation that you and I could have on this and we, we should probably take it offline. Yeah. Okay. No, but I mean, you know, potentially do another podcast because I think I completely agree with everything you just said there. There needs to be something to push up against and there needs to be, in fact, I think you also not know Mark Panay, if I'm not mistaken. Mm, yeah, yeah, he's a good mate. Yeah, yeah. so who I spoke to about this as well. So for the listeners, Mark is, well, he's, he's done many, many things. He's someone who... <laughs> Yeah, what is Mark? He was someone who was also, I think, does not come from a privileged background. He's based out in Bristol, but has done some incredible things with his life and, and certainly in technology. But he had sort of taken this path of, I think, literally just handing out sort of £10,000 to people to see what would happen. And, and he said to me that actually that doesn't work because without that pushback without that slight kind of edge of what am i what am i risking here from the part of the individual on the part of the individual who's receiving that money then it becomes less of a problem. so as i said i think there's probably a, a large conversation to be had there but getting back to ada one of the incredible things is that you have close to 100 scouts operating through the program and they're sourcing and presenting uh, deals to the fund why is this such a core part of how you operate and what do you hope you're going to achieve with that Taking you back to the origin of it, because it's easy to now give you the polished answer, like, you know, because we've been doing it for longer than we had a fund, right? We, whilst one of the things we did whilst we were raising the fund, which, as I say, took us, took us 15 months, which is remarkable. Like I thought it would take, could take two and a half years, three years, sometimes longer to get a first fund done. We were investing on a deal by deal basis, like with 
some people that were supporting us through SPVs. And in so doing, we were able to act as if, as my sister always says, and we were able to be VCs, right? Like Balderton, you know, put us up and they gave us a desk each in their office and we were able to meet and have our deal flow meetings and we didn't have a, a salary or a job or anything, but we were like, you know, and that's something to get into if you want to, but, and we were, we were designing and testing MVP elements of Ada. And one of them was the scout network and it was Czech's idea. She basically saw all this scouting going on in the U S and it's like, what's the Czech Warner version of that as what was the Ada version of that? It's not about, you know, super rich or often rich or well-networked founders in the network of VC funds have got access to interesting deal flow. And they're just incentivized to, to share that with the fund that they're a scout for. The most famous example being Jason Calacanis scouting, you know, Uber, Sequoia. And scouting, the way we do it, is about getting access to really intriguing entrepreneurial communities in the UK. And again, like this has grown massively. There's over 100 of them now. And they are, the scouts at Ada are leaders. They tend to be you know, leaders within or of communities within the UK. They could be, you know, sectoral, tech, geographic, or cultural communities. So, you know, Muslimic Makers is a community of, I think it's about 800 Muslims in tech in London. They need to meet up basically. And uh, it could be developers at Google. It could be entrepreneurs. And Arthur, the leader of that, you know, the founder of that community is, is a scout for Ada. She's also one of Ada's angels. So Ada's angels is now growth of the scout program. She's also um, a guest on the podcast. Yeah. yeah she came right. on last year. Yeah. yeah. So, or, you know, there's an audio tech community. It's all about podcasts in, uh, in Scotland. And we have a, scout up there at least our community we've actually invested in a podcasting infrastructure company called ali2 based in dundee in the north of scotland right and it came through our scout community it's a good example because yeah that founder is not venture backed you know never been venture backed before we only found out about it like he only found out about venture because there's a scout that is in that community for us so the hard aspect of it is they're finding deals for us out of their communities and we pay them £5,000 as a, as a finder's fee, as a consulting fee for doing that. And we give them 10% of the carry on that deal when we invest. And that's the kind of hard aspect to it. And I think the much more interesting aspect to it is we are enfranchising those communities. I don't want to get too wild about it because we've got a lot of work to do on that, but we're enfranchising those communities into a VC fund. So what we're saying to them is through this person, we are interested in your community and you've got access to a community that has some shared values, hopefully, and is going to listen to you, stuff that comes out of this community. We've selected those scouts. You know, there's an application form on the website and they've got to meet certain criteria now. And I think that is a fascinating aspect of it. It's not just the hard-nosed, like, find us a deal and if we do it, we'll pay you. It's also like the, the community aspect of it. So we do quarterly virtual coffees and we'll like, ranging topics from like, I did one on like the back office of a venture capital firm. Like I can see you literally falling asleep. Fair enough. But some of them want to be VCs. And so it's my job to share our VC with our community and say, this is another aspect. It's not all like bells and whistles. There's a, there's an FCA regulated firm to run in the background. And this is how we're learning about doing that. Or we'll get some really cool entrepreneur, you know, a founder on and we'll do a fireside with them for the community. So we're opening up our firm to that community of scouts. And ultimately, so what you're trying to do with it, like this is a bit grandiose, forgive me for this, but it is absolutely what we're trying to do. We're trying to democratize early stage funding. And how do we do that? We do that by giving you access to the firm in a way that is manageable. And we do that by giving capital. So we gave, we, we made five 
of our scouts angels with 250k between them our fund one it's going to be a much bigger version of that in fund two when that comes out and you know because angel investing is another massive massive aspect we haven't talked about and how homogenous is that right in our country and again that's not to throw rocks right that's to say you're not going to get good outcomes if you don't have diverse inputs it's just going to be it's not going to be an optimal output and so ultimately that's really what the scout the scout network is and, and it's really down to Czech's genius that we that she had this kind of breakthrough like we could do this model slightly differently it's since by the way been been uh, copied or replicated or you know quite successfully that's totally fine we're not in it to own it all well i mean i think there's a few things to pick up on there so the first is like the democratization of access again another huge a huge topic that we've talked about several times on on the podcast and feeds back into what we were talking about earlier with Odin and lowering the cost of creating SPVs and containers, a bit like AngelList has done in, in the US. And I have to be fair, you know, both Odin and Voban, which is which is another company that does something very similar, are making great strides in opening up that access and building communities around access to these SPVs and these lower costs, kind of almost like Kickstart VC, right? You can start building your your track record by launching one or two of these SPVs over the course of the year. And to your point, by bringing the scouts in who then bring their communities in, they are giving that wider access back to those communities and can potentially tap into them down the track, either as LPs in a micro fund or as you know investors coming in via an SPV or for deal flow in terms of those overlooked communities. One of the things that I thought was actually really interesting that I hadn't thought about was the scouts actually acting in a two-way fashion. They aren't just providing deal flow for you. They are setting out that stall that venture is available to anyone, right? So I spoke at length with some people from the Scottish Enterprise. I've spoken to Alex Lee from Development Bank of Wales. And in fact, we're, we're releasing his episode as we record this one. But, you know, it's very clear to me that there is a very London-centric, you know, attitude towards tech and venture here in the UK. And there are some incredible things happening in some of these other regions in the, dev in, in the devolved countries and, and the 12 regions. And by using the scouts, you're actually actively broadcasting that it isn't all London-centric, that there is interest in what's happening outside of the M25, which I think is I think is really, really important. I hadn't really thought about it from that direction. I'd, I'd always thought about it in terms of inbound deal flow into the fund, which obviously is interesting and, and important because that that's giving you a variety of, of deals as well. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about kind of you as an investor, right? So in a piece by Czech, she writes that it seemed easy for my colleague Matt to look at a 15-page pitch deck and immediately hone in on the key points and whether it was a yes or a no to taking this company to the next phase. And she goes on to say that you use both sort of system one and system two thinking, right? Fast thinking that is informed by slow experience is how I'd describe it. And is this kind of muscle memory given the sheer volume of deals that you've had to process? Or are there very specific things that you are looking for and that varies from deal to deal? Look, I mean, Czech was learning VC at a rapid rate and yeah, I think there's a real fine balance of system one and system two, as you as you refer to, of how many pitch decks do I review a month? Around 200 probably myself. And I absolutely love pitch decks. I think they're a beautiful distillation of strategy and ambition. And having literally reviewed tens of thousands of them over the years, 
I've got my own biases built into what I'm looking for. And that's actually okay. Sometimes bias is really helpful. Sometimes that fast thinking is really helpful. But I'm looking for certain things with Ada that I was looking for different things with Downing and I was looking for different things in the US. And I think the hardest thing about my job is, well, one of the hardest things about it is keeping my open mind to those biases. So good example is we've just invested in a VR, a VR training business. And you know that's something I've seen for probably six or seven years, I would think now, and always felt it's not scaled, it's not scalable. It's cool, you know, I can geek out on it like anybody else can, but it's not, it's not a scalable, to the level, to a venture scale, right? But we've just done it because I, I kind of forced myself to keep an open mind. And that's the bit that's really hard when you're processing a massive volume and you're using your bias about what you're looking for to, to, to a good effect. So I think that's a really difficult thing, but a really important thing for anyone thinking about this. It's very easy to say, ah, this is my position, the fast thinking, right? And therefore, no, or therefore, yes. And that's one of the beautiful artistic bits about like the VC process. It's really fun. That I really enjoy. I want to be challenged. I want, and that's also back to the scouts. That's what some of them do, right? You know, the best bit of scouting, actually that deal was scouted. And the best bit of scouting was like, you know, me saying that's my response to this VR thing. And the scout saying, like, I think you're wrong. It's my job to listen then, right? And so that, and that's how that deal came through, which is, which is brilliant. But yeah, look, I think, Every VC has got their version of that. Czech was just commenting on the fact that I'm learning VC and this is how it seems to be done by the person I'm working with. So we set out our seed investing framework, which is probably where that piece comes from on the back of that. That's still, still how we do it. So we basically have 10 questions that are the same questions. We ask them of ourselves when we're going through deals together. And if we put a short memo together, we write those 10 answers to that 10 questions in short form, and that's our memo. And then at the end of the deal, when we're signing it off, at the investment committee, which is me and Czech, we have the 10 questions fleshed out a bit more. But we don't anchor to, you know, the quote unquote, like investment paper process. We don't think that's constructive at all. It's just a kind of loss of version. It's a kind of a, I've already made the decision. I've now got a piece of paper on the file or on my drive that says, yeah, I did some work here. I said, no, that is BS. Like with bigger firms, you have to do it because you've got like, you know, somebody's going to say, did you do the right work or have you at some point? But actually, when it's a beauty and the privilege of just two of us that are 50-50 and we make the decisions together, we don't need that nonsense. So our investment memos now are like really conversational. They're like, where am I getting to? How do I really feel about this? And that is the great beauty, back to like my origin story partnership with Czech, because it's love, trust and respect, because we just are so like, we can just say to we can call each other out. We can say, hey, you're pretty native on this. And we can say, hey, you, you're looking at this like this for these reasons. And we both do that to each other all the time. So it's evolved from Czech saying, well, crikey, this VC business is interesting and Matt's doing it like kind of like on autopilot. And there's a positive thing about that. I can power through a lot of pitch decks as any VC can. There's a negative to it, which is that I'm probably bringing a little bit too much bias to the process if I'm doing it that quickly. I think what's interesting to me there is that in venture, at the very least, bias is almost a barrier, right? Like, so if you think about venture as being the contrarian part of finance, you've got to avoid pattern matching, right? To an extent, you've got to suspend reality for a while because so many of the ventures that are truly breakthrough ventures are potentially doing something that is, has just never been imagined before, right? So sitting there and sort of saying, well, you know, but Facebook are doing something kind of similar-ish or, you know, or I've seen this before in a slightly different format. It isn't necessarily helpful because in order to truly do your job as a, as a VC really well, and what, one, of the, one of the difficult learnings I've had in life is that venture is, 
I had this sort of very rose tinted vision of venture being predominantly about, you know, innovation. Then I realized further along that it turned out it was, it was all about money. <laughs> and then I think you get through that and you're like, okay, once you've done the first couple of funds, actually beyond that potentially goes back to that kind of innovation where you have, where you have the ability to start writing those bigger checks and, and taking those bigger punts. But again, going back to my core kind of point there, if you don't as a VC suspend some of your biases, then you are going to end up missing out on a lot of deals. Equally, you need to be able to pass a huge volume of deals in order to, you know, to get to the ones that you want to back. And in order to do that, you've got to bring some of those biases back into play. So that's a massively contradictory kind of way of having to deal with things. One of the things I found as as a micro angel, very difficult is I want to be enthusiastic about every single deal that I look at because I know as a founder myself as well, the amount of effort and, you know, the blood, sweat and tears that have gone into that pitch deck or, or certainly wherever the, you know, however far the business is along, the amount of effort that, that a founder has put into that. And I feel really kind of bad to say, well, no, this isn't for me. And I look at deals from the perspective of large returns. So there are lots of deals that I see that could be you know, great businesses, but they're just not the sort of deals that I want to look at or that I want to invest in rather. And I imagine it is quite disheartening, as you say, to kind of have to go through, you know, a couple of hundred deals a week or a month and and have to reject so many of them. But I guess that's the nature of the job, right? Yeah, look, I think that the answer there is just to be as, as open about it as possible. And the volume of deals that we go through, and we probably invest in you know, 0.5% of what we see or something around there, like every VC, you look at that in aggregate and we are going to piss some people off. Some people are going to be furious. Some people are going to hate us because we've said no to their dream, right? The important thing is, did you do it the right way? We're not always going to do it the right way. I'm not holding myself out as paramount virtue in this, but what we do try and do is be transparent as possible. And, and again, like the volume number of deals we say no to, there'll be people listening or people who could say, you didn't do that with me. And that's probably exactly true, right? Because of the volume, the, the large data rule. So, but what I would say is, can we be honest? And it's really hard to be honest and say, I just don't buy you as an entrepreneur yet. No, that's really hard. It's actually very offensive. And what do we really know? We're sitting there on one side of a desk saying, I don't believe, you know, that's just offensive. So you can't actually say that, right? Often with only just like a pitch deck in front of you, right? So you're making oh, that decision 100%. off a very limited amount of data. A hundred percent. But what we can do is sort of take more care. So, you know, I've, I realized by doing that, by saying to a lot of founders, <laughs> you can say oh, it's not really venture scale, right? That's very patronizing. That's very offensive. You don't know what twists and turns that company and that founder are going to go through to make it like, quote unquote, venture scale. But what I started doing is explaining the maths behind our fund and saying, look, our fund is this size. 80% of what we invest in will probably fail completely at some point. It might take a long time, but it will. 10% blah, blah. I did the maths and I put it into a Medium article, which is worth a read, right? Maybe you link to it in the show notes. And again, be brave. I knew that by doing that, some people would comment on that article saying, you haven't got this bit right or whatever. That's fine. I'm trying to show founders what our thinking is behind saying no. I can't do that in a massive essay to every no that I say, but by putting it on Medium, by talking like this, people can realize, well, and that's the other issue, right? The VC has kept itself so exclusive and so difficult to attain and understand. That's actually having negative impacts because founders are not approaching VCs because they're like, wow, this, these guys, you know, and it is guys, are kind of like pretty exclusive and I don't understand and it seems very, you know, opaque or, you know, 
So there's a big movement now, and it's not just Ada doing this, that's trying to say, hey, here's our VC firm, to the extent we're kind of allowed to do that. And I think that, yeah, we have to say no all the time. And yeah, there's going to be haters. And we've just got to accept that because it's part of the privilege of having a fund is that you're going to, you've got to get some flack. But basically, by trying to be honest and saying, this is how I am paid by my investors to think about your opportunity. You know, Mike Maples Jr. from Floodgate, who is just like a legend on these podcasts, right? And I can understand about half what he's saying because he talks in this amazingly, you know, colorful mosaic of metaphor, which is just so impressive and beautifully crafted, but it's so quick, I can't really pick. And one of the things he said is in his beautiful, like Southern accent, like I'm a rocket fuel salesman, right? That's my job as a VC, I'm selling rocket fuel. You know, that's not right for 99% of companies. If you put rocket fuel in a, in a car or whatever he was talking about, I don't know, that's not ready for that fuel, it's going to burn up pretty quickly, right? And that's a good metaphor. I think, you know, that's the way to understand it is, do you really want venture capital? Everyone reads TechCrunch and they see ven- venture capital, when I got into it, was a super niche. That's probably why I was able to get into it. Like Fred Wilson puts it best, like it was kind of intersection intersection of finance and technology, uh, which is a great nerdy place. Now it's becoming a very important part of our economies because we're so reliant and dependent on startups to build this technology that we're all using in business and personal life and interaction with government and everything we do. Venture is the only scaled solution to funding the unprofitable business models for that period of time before they turn profitable. Sometimes they never do, right? And venture is... And growth capital, the only things that will do that. So it's suddenly become massively in demand, right? Way more than like, I'm the same age as you, like when we first started having consciousness about this stuff. But the issue with that is all these startups, like, right, I've done a startup. That's what I want to do. I don't want to, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to join a startup. I need venture capital. That's what it, well, most of those companies don't actually want rocket fuel in their engines. Because, and what, what I think Mike Maples is meaning by that is, you take on board this fuel, you've got to keep burning at like maximum velocity. That means growth. That means metrics. That means, you know, 20% month on month and all that stuff. And most businesses can't do that. So you don't really want venture capital. Not only that, but <laughs> there are two ways, right? There are two directions you could go in. One is up and the other one is down. I think the rocket fuel metaphor actually works really well for venture because it is about juicing growth. And if you get that mixture slightly wrong, you are going to crash and burn. And that is, I think, the difficult thing for many people. And obviously, you know, there are metrics around survivorship or survival rather as you go sort of stage by stage. But, you know, most of these ventures will not survive past the Series A or Series B. Like they will potentially close down. And nine times out of 10, if they hadn't have taken venture capital, they may have carried on in some shape or form. But that isn't the model. And I think, you know, we talk about it a lot on this podcast and and I talk about it a lot in general. More founders need to get themselves more acquainted with the venture capital model and understand that VC is about returning the fund. It means that every single business that you and other venture capitalists will invest in need to be able to return outsize, outsize returns to back to the fund. Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense. And I always get asked this question, well, why not invest in, you know, 10 businesses that could potentially sell for 100 million? Because then, you know, that's the same as a billion. I'm like, but it's not. And actually, you've got to think about ownership. You've got to think about, you know, your ability to pick those 10 businesses that could, you know, exit at 100 million, because that isn't easy to do either, right? No easier than picking one. Well, in fact, potentially even harder than picking one that has real opportunity to potentially scale outside of that. 
and I think when founders have it explained or when individuals have that explained to them, their attitude towards VC not softens, but I think they become more understanding. And I think, you know, I taught myself sort of portfolio construction to an extent and all of these things and understood more about power laws and so on because I found it such a intriguing and yet dissatisfying mode to fund these businesses. I think I think we probably will see a shift over time because there has to be a less, or I hesitate to say this because it, it actually then flips the whole kind of concept of venture capital. But as we said earlier, if you can get more cash into more people's hands, potentially you will see better outcomes. But the problem with getting more cash into more people's hands is that actually from a venture perspective, that's just far too spray and pray, right? Mm. You are, you are taking a bet against too many. And that's certainly not what we're saying. That's not what Ada is about. We've got some branding work to do on this to get that message more clearly, right? We are not saying get more cash into more people's hands. We are saying the greatest founders in the world can come from anywhere. So we are saying we need to be open to more people come from anywhere. We've built structural ways of doing that, like the Scouts. We're working on kind of unstructured ways of doing that, like like our brand and our communication, our, and communicating our values and saying we will listen to you. But you've got to be the greatest, right? Otherwise, the venture capital model falls apart. So the other thing is for us, the chip on our shoulder now with Fund One is a lot of LPs said no to us because effectively they said, I'm not really sure that's going to work. I'm not really sure that black founders are going to win. I'm not really sure that women are going to build big businesses. You know, this is literally what we were, and in some cases, we were told that, right? Be that as shocking as it may be, but we've got a big chip on our shoulder about that. The only way we can prove the haters wrong is by finding the winners being a 10x fund, right? And saying, sorry, you're wrong. But I think that is very important. Like, and again, like that's hard to get across. We're only backing the very best. We just have a fundamentally different belief, which is that the very best can come from anywhere. They don't have to come from the the traditional routes to, you know, technology, multi-billion stardom, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> again, to your point there, you have to be able to demonstrate top decile, top quartile returns. And the other thing that I think a lot of founders don't think about is that ultimately in venture, fund one, performance of fund one is there allow you to raise fund two and then fund three and so on and so forth. So you need to show that really exciting, amazing return profile to be able to carry on doing what you love doing and therefore being able to fund more and more of those founders that that you want to back. I mean, look, finally, we love all things entrepreneurial here on Nothing Ventured. It's baked right into the title. and We've talked quite a lot about it already today. But how do you see the entrepreneurial landscape right now? And what are the sort of shifts that you think we're likely to see in the near future? I think the landscape kind of goes back to something I was saying earlier, which is that everyone wants to be in a startup. They want to found their own startup or they want to work in a startup. It's cool. It's flexible. It's young. It's fun. Like, it's kind of like me saying I wanted to be in private equity when I was, you know, my early 20s. Like, no one probably says that now. I, I don't really know. But, you know, that seems to be right now, entrepreneurship is cool. Therefore, venture capital is, like, required in greater volume. That's creating some structural problems, bottlenecks, issues that we've alluded to already on this on this pod. I think that the really cool thing about that is 
how creative is society and the world and like the stuff that's being invented is mind-blowing i see it every day like this is the the funnest privilege about the job is all the stuff that gets sent to me i'm like wow you know mission-oriented nature of a lot of these founders like they're like yeah i'm going to change the freaking world that's what we're looking for by the way over and above everything is like i'm going to change the freaking world and i can't stop scratching this itch and it's a startup that's going to do this right and that's just that is just fun right I think the challenge is there's not really enough of a capital market that's efficient enough, sophisticated enough to support that yet. I think all of that is coming, right? Like, for example, seeing successful founders, hot companies taking out one or two million at Series A and secondary, you know, more at Series B. Founders are able to pay down mortgages, get off living on credit cards at a much earlier stage. And that is only helpful. So I think what am I seeing I'm seeing more sophistication in the capital market. Like before, venture was pretty scary. Like, and no wonder probably it was only rich people already that did it because you know, it takes 10, 12 years before you actually make any money out of it. Right now, I think that's, 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 that's compressing significantly for the founders, the angels, the early investors, the, v, the early VCs. You know, there's these huge secondary opportunities, whether that's like, you know, in a round or whether that's funds being restructured to take LPs out if they want to, if they want to sell. There's all this kind of innovation going on in the capital market as a result. And that's pretty thrilling. You know, I look at this thing, I think, well, if I don't mess up too badly, I've got a job for the rest of my life because of the demand on what I sell, venture capital, right? And it's just only going to be exponential. And I think that I can now say with a straighter face to like my wife and people who supported me to like do this and go out of the paid employment for long enough to put it all together is actually it might not be 10 or 12 years before we have, you know, significant success that can, that can support the next thing we do. And that's pretty, like, that's really helpful. You know what I mean? Like, you know, maybe there's more founders listening to this and it's better that we talk about that perspective. And that's really helpful to someone that's given four years of pure grind to this and is pretty financially exhausted that they can take out a few hundred grand at series a and not meaningfully dilute their stake and the venture capital community looks at that looks at that and says these days that's great you will now be able to keep the hammer pressed down because you, you're not a financial anxiety financial anxiety is a massive performance inhibitor links back to some of the stuff we we're talking about earlier about the privilege of being able to get started but i think that it's it's re- that's really great to see that you know and it enables people to stay in longer, to build bigger businesses, to not sell DeepMind for $400 million to Google, right? What's DeepMind worth today if it wasn't in Google? 20 billion? I don't know, but a lot more than 400 million, right? And I think that that wasn't available then. And VC in the UK was kind of characterized by like more of a private equity style downside focus. You can't take money off the table. You're not aligned with us anymore. That's going to reduce your incentive. BS, right? And we've learned that as an industry now. And so I think that we're becoming more sophisticated and a better functioning capital market. Yeah, I think that point around and for our listeners, and we, we have both sort of investors as well as founders that, that listen to the podcast, you know, secondary round is where founders or, or smaller investors from earlier rounds are able to take some of their cash off the table by selling some of their shares rather than having fresh capital, only fresh capital injected into the business, which is, which is how a normal financing round would occur. I think that above and all else seems to me to be one of the most obvious and simple ways to, as you say, 
lessen the barrier for more people to get into entrepreneurship? Because if you are no longer waiting 10, 12, 15 years to get liquidity, but actually, you know what, in three or four years, I can take enough off the table that, as you say, I don't need to worry about my house or my kid's education or, you know, I've got enough that my wife is is going to be sorted with a pension down the track if all else fails. Like that, that is massively important. And, and that anxiety, you know, as, as someone who is currently operating two businesses, that that is, I can tell everyone listening to the podcast with zero shame at all that that financial anxiety never goes mm. away. And the anxiety, you know, your first anxiety is always, can I pay the staff as a founder? Your second anxiety is to yourself and often not even, right? And it's not often something they'll even speak about. So I think it's great that that is happening. Look, Matt, it's been absolutely amazing having you on the podcast. I I really appreciate your time. For our listeners, where's the best place for them to come looking for you? Are you on LinkedIn? Are you on Twitter? Where's, Where's the best place for them to find you online? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter you know, like any VC is, it's kind of a bit of an echo chamber though. I mean, you know, that's fine. I'm Matt at adventures.com, you know, Matt two T's at adventures.com. Email is for everybody these days, a bit of a horror show, but you know what? It's a pretty good tool. really. And also like our events, like we're, we're investing in community. We're hiring into the, into the ADA team. We're going to do, we're, now we can roam around and we can do things in, in public. You know, we're going to, in person, we're going to, do a lot more events and Czech and I will be very visible, particularly Czech, you know, and so and we're also getting out and about around the UK and as well, taking Ada out, you know, into the areas outside of London. So hopefully I'm pretty easy to reach. Any of those things are fine, but, uh, including email. Amazing. Matt, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you having come on the pod. Thank you. I appreciate you too. And I appreciate your time and everything that you're doing with this brilliant podcast. Thanks for listening to Nothing Ventured, an Emerge One production. Follow us on social and at nothingventured.tech to make sure you never miss another episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can support us by giving us five stars on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners to understand the topics and guests that they'd like to hear about and from most. Drop us a message via the links in the show notes, and thanks again for your support.